Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, a done deal? After walking off the job four months ago, 1,700 striking nurses reach a tentative agreement. The sticking point? Safe staffing standards. The nurses have said all along that they were going to hold out for enforceable nurse-patient ratios, and they seem to have achieved that. Also, COVID cases rising. It's simply a case of there are more people getting sick, and therefore, as a result, a certain proportion of those individuals are going to become hospitalized. Health officials warn of a new COVID-19 variant driving up infection rates and hospitalizations here in New Jersey. Plus, seafood industry oversight. After a bombshell investigation into forced labor practices, lawmakers are now looking to crack down on Chinese seafood imports. You can't compete when you have forced labor uh, with no real overhead. It's unfair trade, but it's also a gross violation of human rights. And taking a toll. Critics of New York City's proposed congestion pricing plan say it could tank the holidays. John o. Scrooge Lieber is putting 15 lumps of coal in everyone's stocking this year with his $15 a day congestion tax. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Monday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. The end could be near in the bitter nurses strike at RWJ University Hospital in New Brunswick, which marks four months today since 1,700 nurses walked off the job and to the picket line. That's where they've remained while hospital and union leadership battled through tense negotiations, reaching a tentative agreement on Friday. Now, few details are known, but it does include pay increases along with enforceable safe staffing ratios. That was a significant sticking point for the nurses. A senior correspondent, Joanna Gagas, reports the contract still has to be approved by union members and there's no potential date for when those nurses will return to work. Has this strike been hard for you? <laughs> yes. Okay. You know, I make the money. I never thought we would be out here this long. Judy Danella and several strike-weary nurses were on the picket line once again today outside of RWJ University Hospital. It's day 123 of the strike where nurses are pushing for enforceable staffing ratios in the hospital. But the strike could soon be coming to an end. We did sign a memorandum of agreement. We did sign that. We're still waiting for informational sessions and a vote sometime hopefully within the next uh, 10 days or something like that. Union leadership still hasn't shared the details of the agreement with its members, but called it in a statement a historic agreement that includes enforceable safe staffing standards for the first time. The hospital saying it reflects our shared goals of providing the highest quality patient care and creating a safe and supportive working environment for our nurses. This has been a long and, and pretty bitter strike. And um, the nurses have said all along that they were going to hold out 
for enforceable nurse-patient ratios, and they seem to have achieved that, so it's good news. Congressman Frank Pallone's had a hand in the discussions between the hospital and nurses. He's hopeful today about this tentative deal. The hospital's spending a lot of money hiring temporary nurses, and the nurses are out of work and don't have health insurance. So when, we, when they came together for this latest agreement, we've been encouraging uh, you know, them to not only do it, but saying that, you know, this seems like a good agreement. But this isn't the first time a deal was reached that the union members later turned down. Our members did not agree on it, um, so hopefully this one will be presented and they will agree on it and we will go back to work. Given the size of RWJ Barnabas Health, which owns RWJ University Hospital and is an underwriter of NJ Spotlight News, the impact of this deal could be far-reaching. I think we will see um, a huge amount of pressure for all of Barnabas to adopt these these ratios, these these minimum uh, staffing levels. And what, what we may then see is a greater willingness of Barnabas and other healthcare providers to support legislation so that everybody has a level playing field and everybody has those minimum ratios. A bill, S-304, was introduced in May by Senators Joe Vitale and Linda Greenstein and would require, among its list of nurse ratios, one nurse for every five patients on a medical or surgical unit, one for every two patients in critical care, and one nurse per patient in trauma. It covers staffing of developmental and psychiatric facilities as well. This is not a strike just that will stop once we, it has been resolved. It will continue until New Jersey gets achieved safe staffing ratios. Until that is passed in the um, legislature. At this point, it's a timing issue to see which moves forward first, a finalized contract here or the legislature finally taking up the staffing ratio bill in the lame duck session. They say that they're going to put it forth for the lame duck in January, so I can only hope that that happens and that it passes through. That hope, a sentiment you could feel in the air on this picket line today. In New Brunswick, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. The nurses' strike may be ending at a significant time for the state. New Jersey health officials warn COVID-19 cases have been slowly rising over the last couple of weeks, and they expect the trend to continue throughout the winter. Just shy of 500 people in the state are hospitalized for the virus, according to New Jersey's health department. It's also the first major uptick in new coronavirus cases seen nationwide in months, with another new variant driving the rise in infections. The World Health Organization is calling this strain one to watch. Here to explain why is Montclair State University epidemiologist Stephanie Silvera. Stephanie, thanks for coming in to talk about this uh, new variant, which uh, the World Health Organization says is one to watch, and yet it seems to be following the same path that other variants went. Is it more aggressive? So I think it does have a little bit of an advantage over the strains that have been circulating. And so we're seeing this quickly become on its track to become the dominant variant. That said, there's no good data at this point to indicate that it's more dangerous in terms of hospitalizations. Hospitalizations are ticking up, but that's also to be expected after the holidays. We've seen this pattern before. Yeah, so this new strain is called Pirola. Uh, we won't get into all the digits and numbers after it. If it doesn't cause more severe disease, how does it differ from what we've seen in the past? So I think what we are seeing is 
simply a case of there are more people getting sick and therefore as a result a certain proportion of those individuals are going to become hospitalized. So I think that if you are an individual who's over 65 who have comorbid, comorbid conditions, you do need to be concerned and you do need to do what you can to protect yourself, especially as we go into the holiday season. What's the efficacy of this latest <clears throat> vaccine? folks who are now sort of in the rhythm of getting regularly boosted and those who are not, what do they need to know about it? So the current booster, which was formulated for one of those long letters, XBB115, does seem to offer protection against this variant. The problem is not a lot of people are getting boosted at this point. And so our overall level of immunity is a little bit lower. The big concern with this variant is, as usual, there's a subvariant, And once those recombine, which seems to be happening in Europe, that's where we can lose some of that immune protection. So, and various viruses rather love to mutate. So we shouldn't be surprised by that, but what should we anticipate for the winter months? In the last couple of years, we've had a lot of talk about this triple-demic. Is that what we're looking at again? So I think that we do need to be concerned about the impact that COVID has on our immune systems. And what we have seen is that individuals who get sick with COVID are more likely to then uh, be susceptible to things like flu or RSV or even just mm. the common cold. And so because our immune system is under attack and we're busy fighting COVID, you're less able to fight off some of these other illnesses. So anything we can do to stop the spread of respiratory illness helps across the board. So pretty much the same practices that we've now all gotten used to as soon as the cold weather months hit. Absolutely, so as much as possible, if you can meet outdoors, keep windows open, improve ventilation. And I think one of the really important things is if you feel sick, stay home right. as much as you are capable. Just don't spread what you have, whether it's COVID or flu to anybody else. When we look at flu and RSV rates, is it about where we expect it to be? Because there was a pretty heavy onset, it seemed, uh, in the fall as far as data goes. And it appears anyway uh, with RSV that it's leveling off. Yeah, I think that that's what we're seeing. And I think we're getting back into what are the more typical RSV and flu patterns that we saw pre-COVID. They were all thrown off during COVID because our behaviors were different. Right. And I think we're getting back to a more um, typical cyclical pattern. Some sense of normalcy, if we can say that. As much as we can have, yes. Dr. Stephanie Silvera, thanks so much. Thank you. Israel is expanding its military ground operation against Hamas in Gaza, with forces now hitting the southern part of the Strip around the densely populated city Khan Yunis, an area that was already home to far more Palestinian refugees than it has capacity for. A spokesperson for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, on Sunday confirmed they're now targeting all of Gaza, saying a weekend airstrike killed a Hamas commander who was responsible for carrying out the October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. Israelis, adding the military is determined to eliminate Hamas around the world, even if it takes years. But the focus on southern Gaza is intensifying the humanitarian crisis for Palestinians. The UN says more than 80 percent of Gaza's total population, about 1.9 million people, have been displaced since the start of the war. Many were told to evacuate from the north to the south, which is now under bombardment, with new evacuation orders issued this Sunday and no place left for Palestinian refugees to go. For more on the crisis, I'm joined by Kenneth Roth. He served for nearly three decades as the executive director of Human Rights Watch and is a visiting professor at Princeton University. 
Ken Roth, thanks so much for joining me. Um, this latest mm -hmm. round of fighting has now put Palestinians in an even more dire situation because, quite frankly, they're running out of places to go. What type of choices are they having to make right now when they're being asked to evacuate again? Completely impossible choices. I mean, Israel has sent around this very detailed map of southern Gaza. But of course, many Palestinian civilians there don't even have access to electricity to download the map. And Israel stopped saying, oh, you can move here because it's safe. They've now just started saying, move there because it's safer. But they're not you know, guaranteeing any place won't be bombed. They've said you know, they're attacking all of Gaza now. And so the civilians don't know what to do. Do they you know, stay where they are and risk getting bombed? Or do they go someplace else and risk getting bombed? And of course, all of this is in the context of extremely limited access to basic food, water, electricity, you know, the, the necessities of life. The hospitals have been severely curtailed. And so it is a horrible situation for Palestinian civilians. I'm also thinking about the fact that a lot of these uh, individuals and families have already moved once or twice, evacuated once or twice. As you said, aid is limited. And so how do they go about bringing with them what they need when they've already left uh, a home or a place of refuge. I mean, they can't. That, that's the basic thing. And, and I think we do have to, at this point, say, you know, Israel is required to abide by humanitarian law. That is to say, you know, the basic rules that war crimes by one side don't justify war crimes by the other. So, you know, what Hamas did on October 7th, the horrible slaughter and abduction of civilians, does not justify Israel you know, either bombing civilian targets, as an Israeli media outlet recently showed, where they're trying to get Palestinian civilians to pressure Hamas, you know, which could be a death sentence. That's a war crime. The indiscriminate bombing of whole neighborhoods rather than specifically targeting military targets, that's a war crime. And, and most commonly, we're seeing that you know, even when there is a military target, Israel's been firing in a way that causes disproportionate harm to civilians. There was an investigation by 972 Magazine looking into the way Israel identifies its targets to bomb. And, and, and you alluded to that in terms of civilian casualties. In your experience, uh, 30 years at Human Rights Watch, um, and I'm not asking you to speculate as to whether uh, the Israeli military specifically knows what the civilian count will be in terms of casualties, but is this type of expansion in the way these military offenses can be carried out just leading to mass casualties among civilians? Well, the, what you're referring to, the Israeli independent media outlet 972 had this stunning revelation, which is that the Israeli military is deliberately targeting what they call power centers. But what they really meant is you know, significant prestige civilian institutions not legitimate military targets, but civilian institutions as a way to force Palestinian civilians to put pressure on Hamas to surrender. And so they gave examples, something we've seen even in prior wars, where they would go after you know, some big prestigious apartment building. No real military reason for doing that. Suddenly they render 100 families homeless, and the idea is just to show Palestinian civilians, you're going to suffer the consequences, put pressure on Hamas to stop. But of course, how do Palestinian civilians pressure Hamas? This is a military dictatorship. You get shot if you start protesting. So this is a cruel war crime strategy that the Israeli government is pursuing and is obviously adding to the civilian casualty count. 
Ken Roth is the former executive director at Human Rights Watch and is a visiting professor at Princeton University. Ken, thanks so much. Thank you. Animal shelters across New Jersey say they're at a tipping point. Overcrowded, running out of the space, and volunteers needed to maintain the welfare of the animals they keep. And activists who showed up at a hearing in Trenton today say there's another problem plaguing the pet industry. A senior correspondent, Brenda Flanagan, reports there's a patchwork system of oversight making it nearly impossible to know whether a dog from the pet store came from a licensed breeder or a puppy mill. Should you adopt instead of shop? And how can towns best care for feral cat colonies like this one under Atlantic City's boardwalk? People got emotional over a couple of bills before lawmakers today, like the proposal to fund TNVR, or trap, neuter, vaccinate, and release of unsocialized cats with state tax dollars. Organizations like mine cannot continue to sustain paying for all the community cats and the feral cats that are brought to our attention. Supporters of the Compassion for Community Cats bill told the Senate Economic Growth Committee that in 2021, cats comprised 60% of animals impounded in New Jersey and 80% of those euthanized. Exploding cat populations can overwhelm local organizations and town shelters. It's expensive at a single shelter. We trap in TNVR over 2,000 cats per year. We are on pace this year to spend $70,000 on TNVR clinics and another 60,000 getting medical attention for injured community cats. Ann Rapasorda says TNVR works. At her Burlington County shelter, it reduced the number of cats euthanized from 500 in 2019 to 200 this year. But opponents insist cats don't belong in the landscape and prey on songbirds. You will hear shelter workers say they are stressed by having to euthanize cats. This is true. Here is something else that is stressful. Working in wildlife rehabilitation, holding in your hand the broken body of a songbird that has traveled 1,000 miles only to land in the jaws of a cat. Meanwhile, overcrowded animal shelters could get a boost from another bill that would ban pet shops from selling dogs, cats, and rabbits from breeders and instead foster adoption from shelters. It would also repeal New Jersey's Pet Purchase Protection Act as no longer required. Unsuspecting consumers are routinely duped by pet stores' claims that their animals come from family breeders, small breeders. In reality, virtually all animals sold at pet stores are sourced from mills, large-scale commercial breeding facilities that prioritize profit over the welfare of animals. But pet shop owners are outraged and blame so-called activists. These animal rights people have been harassing us for years, sending in undercover activists with hidden cameras, harassing local town officials with spam emails and lies about our business. Make no mistake, the activists will stop at nothing to try and drive our stores out of business. No matter the quality of our breeders, if they sell to a pet store, by definition, they are automatically bad. There is no standard that will ever be acceptable to them simply because they don't like what we do. Who breeds the dogs and what defines a puppy mill remains open to interpretation. Seven states have already passed similar laws, and New York's ban on animal sales in pet shops takes effect next year. If New Jersey doesn't pass this law in 2024, some of these same bad actors in New York are going to come right across the river 
and come to our state. The committee didn't vote on any of these measures. It's still taking testimony and could tweak the language in response to comments. At the State House in Trenton, I'm Brenda Flanagan and J Spotlight News. Well, we now know it'll likely cost drivers an extra 15 bucks a day if they enter Manhattan south of 60th Street. The newly revealed details on New York City's congestion pricing plan are causing one of the most vocal New Jersey critics to ramp up attacks. Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer today joined with a local restaurant owner in Manhattan, arguing the added toll will take a hit on holiday tourism in the city. Standing outside Il Posto Acanto on East 2nd Street, Gottheimer said it'll make both commuters and visitors think twice before driving in. The congestion tax is on top of existing tolls at the bridges and tunnels entering New York City and is expected to go into effect this spring. Proponents say it's intended to reduce traffic and air pollution along with raising money for the city's transportation authority. But critics, including Governor Murphy, have called the plan unfair because none of the funds go toward New Jersey mass transit projects. Gottheimer today also renewed his calls for the state to launch tax incentives to lure businesses across the Hudson River. Next Christmas, I fear that families will be priced out of coming to see the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree or walking past Macy's store front windows, or coming to dinner at El Posto. Every single restaurant, store, dry cleaner, and small business in Manhattan will lose customers. John O. Scrooge Lieber is putting 15 lumps of coal in everyone's stocking this year with his $15 a day congestion tax. In our Spotlight on Business report, Congressman Frank Pallone wants U.S. Customs to step up enforcement when screening seafood products imported from China, which account for about $2 billion worth of goods brought annually here. The demand follows a sweeping investigation that revealed much of that seafood is produced through illegal and unethical labor practices, driving American seafood companies out of the market and harming the fishing industry. Ted Goldberg reports. The Belford Seafood Co-op sells a ton of fish. Even as they face stiff competition from other countries. The problem with them fish coming in, they're a lot cheaper than ours. And we can't go that cheap with them. Because if we go that cheap, we can't pay our crews. While Belford has its regulars, most Americans get their seafood from non-American companies. We can't fish for 80 cent fish pay three or four dollars a gallon for fuel. Eighty percent of all seafood consumed is imported. The country that produces the largest portion of that is China. China has essentially cornered the global seafood market. According to four years of reporting from the Outlaw Ocean Project, Chinese ships have done so thanks to overfishing and human rights abuses, especially on fishing vessels. Death rates are high. Sometimes the death rates are from avoidable injuries. Other times the death rates are from malnutrition, disease, or straight-up violence. Ian Urbina leads the Outlaw Ocean Project. He says workers on Chinese ships risk being blacklisted if they complain about their conditions, while Uyghur people working in processing plants are forced to work there. These Uyghurs do not have the option of saying no when, when the recruiter comes knocking. Uh, or, and so, so this is um, textbook state-sponsored forced labor. They have to go when they're called. When they get there, they're under close watch. They stay there. A lot of their earnings are confiscated by the government. Urbina says boycotting China is difficult because those processing plants also take care of fish scooped up from American waters. A lot of U.S. Um, 
seafood, you know, fished in Alaskan waters or the coast of California or the coast of Maine, wherever, um, gets frozen, sent to China for processing, frozen again, sent back. And uh, some of that seafood is going through processing plants in China. Politicians have gotten involved from both sides of the aisle, hoping to boost American businesses that are falling behind China. I'm sending a letter to the customs office. We want them to step up enforcement in light of this report and other reports. We want them to do better screening of seafood products coming into the country. At this point, Pallone says this is a problem that doesn't require Congress to come up with a set of new laws. While that could always change, Pallone says the current issue is regulation or a lack of it. We want them to report back to us about exactly what they're doing to prevent uh, illegal Chinese um, uh, seafood from coming into the country. You can't compete when you have forced labor uh, with no real overhead. It's unfair trade, but it's also a gross violation of human rights. Congressman Chris Smith also says it's an enforcement issue, since there are laws on the books against doing business with companies that commit abuses against human rights. He says this is also a national security issue. They use those ships for other uh, extracurricular type of activities like spying, uh, severing cables as they did um, in the South China Sea. Uh, you know, these are their fishing boats and you know, the Soviets were good at that too. Smith wrote the Department of Homeland Security in October asking for the supply chain to be investigated. He says he hasn't heard a response. At least one New Jersey-based company has dropped the supplier accused of using forced labor. Lund's Fisheries in Cape May said in October, quote, Although our investigation did not find any evidence of illegal activity or forced labor in the operations of Rancheng Haibo Seafood, we are maintaining our cessation of new businesses pending further investigation. In Port Monmouth, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Turning to Wall Street, stocks pulled back today after five straight weeks of gains. Here's how the markets closed. That does it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. NJM Insurance Group has been part of New Jersey for over a century. We support our communities through NJM's corporate giving program, supporting arts and culture related and nonprofit organizations that serve to improve the lives of children, rebuild communities, and help to create a new generation of safe drivers. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.